Stella. Sunny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is Blix. And this is John. Welcome to another episode of Fringeworthy, the podcast. Survival Tips. Survival Tips. Packing for success. Equipping the characters. This time we're going to be speaking about data gathering and how the equipment that you use for data gathering really can make a difference in the success of your missions and also how it gets you paid when you're in the Fringeworthy game. John? Oh, yeah. With my teams and my past experience, they use a lot of remote sensing devices. This is back in the 80s, so we were actually using small RC planes to fly out and gather information. Depending on the culture, they had no idea what that is in the sky, but there it is. So your RC planes or remote aerial vehicles now, what kind of sensors would you have on those? This is back in the 80s, so a video camera small to fit on a small RC airplane didn't exist. So we actually had regular old, good old-fashioned film cameras taking pictures, flying a course and coming on back. Well, even back in that time, the Estes Model Rocket Company had a remote control film pack, not just taking pictures, but also movie film, and that was only a few ounces. So you could attach that to a plane and still be able to take actual motion pictures that way. Yeah, but having had one of those, I knew what the quality was. So they actually wanted a little bit larger frame size for the pictures. You would advocate having some kind of remote vehicle, like, say, an aerial vehicle. These days, would you prefer a fixed wing over a helicopter? or Lighter than air, a small little balloon to fly up there. Because it can stay in place for no power at all. It can conserve power by just simply floating in the air. And if you need to move someplace else, you just simply turn the engines. It can even be solar-powered. Turn the engines and move to the new location. I would prefer that sort of a system. Of course, that does mean you have a lot of ground equipment for it, though. It also means that you've got a big old line that points right back to where your location is. If you're trying to do some kind of covert surveillance, that's not going to help you very much. Wireless. Be, I mean, it'd be wireless. You still have to tether it. No, you don't. I'm talking a uh, one that actually has motors that flies, like a little Zeppelin. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's I, a I good did, idea. I thought you were just talking about it like a big weather balloon so you could pull up a really big package and really record a lot of stuff. No, but it, weather balloons come in handy, too. If you really want to do a survey of the world, you still want to do a good high-altitude atmosphere thing. Trouble is, a weather balloon won't get you up very high because the balloon will expand to a point where it'll just simply burst before it gets up, up high, high where people want to go. But it'll still get you good data up to, say, above the cloud deck. One of the things that we used to do was we'd take a, take a helium balloon with a self-inflating pull string type of deal. We'd attach a cheap, basically a disposable camera that, was, that would transmit. And we would release this thing at night so that we could see where all the populace were. 
if you came out of the ring and uh, you were in the middle of the woods and you had no idea what direction to go in, you know, it could be miles in any direction and whatever direction you pick would probably be the wrong one. You'd take one of these helium balloons and let that thing go up at nighttime with a camera that would transmit to a laptop. And, of course, you have to charge all the stuff after you come through the, the ring. But you'd send that up and then um, this camera would point straight down. So as it got high up in the atmosphere, you could see if there was any kind of lights or cities or urban developments anywhere nearby. Which also brings us to the importance of picking the right kind of opticals and sensors. Because one of the things that's at night would be a really good idea would be some kind of an infrared sensor on your camera. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would be good. That's a good so, idea. Yeah, sure. You can, you can tell where animals are. You can tell where people are, especially if they're c- closing in on your camp because <laughs> you've been making so much noise running your generator to charge up your batteries considering that you came through the portal at night and there's no light to, to use your solar electric panels. Right. So to optical packages like zooms, night scope packages, those are all really good things to have. And a lot of them have the ability to switch between one or the other. And since this is a, a game, there's no reason why you can't say, hey, I've got one of these super optical packages that's attached to this uh, camera that I'm attaching to my balloon, as long as you're keeping it reasonable within you know, weight limits or whatever you're using to launch. That's true, and, it, and it's not unreasonable to say that you know IDET would have something like that. And that's not crazy. I mean, that's not like off-the-wall crazy. You know, If you go to some world that was just slightly more advanced, they could acquire stuff like that. Right, but we also know that there's an awful lot of equipment out there that is available, but it's expensive. But when you're one of the few people who have the IDET you know, ability to go through the portals, you know, the UN's going to pay, you know, $10,000 for a camera package for you or even $100,000 if it's something that you can justifiably say this is recoverable and we're going to be using it again and again. Oh, sure. Yeah, if you're going to bring it back. Sure. Yeah, the, the, the balloons we were talking about, right, yeah, if you're going to do that, if you're going to tether it down, which is probably a good thing because at nighttime, no one's going to see that tether anyway and you can always pull it down in the morning. Right. But what we, you know, I was just, I was going by what I was talking about. We use disposable because we just let that thing go. We let it go wherever it went. So you're using some kind of uh, some network or maybe a packet radio broadcaster to go and send that stuff from the camera when you let them right. go in the daytime off to wherever it is they're going to go. Right, right. So you and have to have some kind of receiver then to receive this. Yeah, yeah, we did. We rationalized that it wouldn't be too awful expensive. The receiver, because you could put most of the, the really technical stuff on the receiver and put all the cheaper components on on the camera that goes out. And it was worth you know losing a $1,000 camera to save maybe a week's worth of travel time in the wrong direction. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the most important things I would think in this whole thing would be some kind of way of something to coordinate all this. And so uh, in our game, you know, we recommend the Erding computer, which has been set up as a kind of a supercomputer, though you know, in the sense that it's much better than what you would normally be able to buy out there. It's you know comes with a couple terabyte drives and it's got all kinds of hard disk stuff and fast memory and everything else like that so that you can essentially load in any program that you might need to either monitor your radio frequencies or the frequencies of anybody around. Secondly, to uh, to pick up all of your uh, video feeds that are coming in and be able to handle all those things. Yeah. The problem with the course with the iridine, though, is that you the platters lose all their magnetic properties after going through the portal. Yeah, every time you come through, you, you pull out your stack of Blu-ray data DVDs and you 
put them back in, and you fire it up again. Of course, at the end of the mission, you got to have another stack of, of DVDs and burn and burn and burn and burn and burn and burn all the information you gathered on the DVDs because you're going to lose it going through the platform on the discs, on the hard drive. Yeah, but you wouldn't do that. What you'd do is that while you were recording, you'd have a background task to constantly burn those onto to Blu-rays so that, you know, as you use them. And so that way, with a big disc changer, so that when you finally, you know, did t- turn around and come time to leave, you'd already have them burned. Because the last thing you want is to have to bug out through the portal and lose all your data. That's true. Right, so you want to make sure that you're burning it the whole time. Which means you also will be carrying a video recording. You're probably using video recorders that burn to DVD instead of to a, uh, a disc. So you're using that. You probably, to a hard drive. Most video recorders burn to uh, SD memory. Uh, but there are some out there that actually will burn straight to a DVD while you're recording. So instead, so it doesn't go to an SD, it goes to a DVD as you go. So there's no erasing. It's just basically once on, there it is. Do um do the, you know like the pen drives are they magnetic? Yes. Okay. Yeah, flash drives are magnetic. Yeah. Okay. Flash right. drive, thumb drives, whatever you know. Any, they're all will get wiped going through the portal. Okay. Now another thing I would recommend using is a decent parabolic microphone. It's a microphone mounted in front of a parabolic dish that allows you to hear what people are saying from a distance of several of a hundred or so yards. Espionage groups use these all the time. And therefore, they can sit off to the distance and aim at somebody and listen to what they're saying. And this is great if you don't actually want to encounter the people first, but you want to just listen into their conversations and try to figure what's going on, especially if this is a first encounter style um, situation. You want, to know, you want to gather more information on what's going on before you actually go up and say howdy and shake their hands. So where we were talking about being able to record visual data, now you're talking about being able to collect audio data. That's correct. As a matter of fact, I think, as I understand it, you they have um, parabolic mic systems. I don't know if it's just any parabolic mic or if it's a special one, but you can point them at glass, and they'll pick up vibrations off the glass. That's to... the laser bounce mics. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. And like you can actually point it out a window and listen to what people are saying in the in the room. That is correct. That is also one of those cool little spy-type devices. And, of course, all that sort of stuff would be available. There would be uh, ultrasonics, whatever else would be available, because most of the worlds in which you're going to go to are probably going to be in the past versus in the future. Mm-hmm. Just because of the fact is we, in our own world, we, well, I, I, we really can't say we have a lot more past than future, but I just think that it's more likely, as far as the uh, adventure is concerned, that you'll be end up in the past, and so they will have lot less ability to defeat these kinds of, of mechanisms to listen in and overhear them. Right. So we have audio recordings, we have visual recordings, but you know we also want to make sure we, re- we record everything that we can. So we want to be able to record radiation, mm-hmm. we want to be able to record all the spectrum of light, microwaves, because you know you go into a world and all of a sudden you start getting really hot and flushed, it may be that you're getting cooked with microwaves and you need to know this. A lot of this stuff is going to be showing up on whatever method of initial recording of data that you use. We have the wind-up in the book, uh, but that's only one such device. My players prefer to use other type devices because inevitably it seems like they roll the wind-up through and it gets stuck on a root or something like that, and it doesn't roll back. So they end up using a lot of other devices to try to find out things. It's important that you go and do a good check on all the different things, airborne viruses. You want to be able to know whether or not you can take off 
your equipment, your environmental suit, because that gets in the way of you manipulating a lot of objects and things like that. You have to remember, a lot of those tests, the really important ones, you got to take back to a lab. I mean, I hate to say it, if you want to check for viruses, you have a Petri dish that gets exposed. Basically, it's not going to go to a lab and get incubated and see what grows. Or, of course, you could do the, the, the test that most of the fringe-worthy people do, which is, in the case of bacteria or virus, you just expose yourself to it. And when you, if you start feeling sick, you go onto the platform trusting in the biofilters of, of the portal to cleanse it out of you. And if, in fact, you feel better afterwards, you know there's some kind of a bad virus on the other side. And that's yeah. when you go and collect the uh, airborne data and the water data and the stuff like that and take it back. That's what we used to do. We were hot dogs, man. We would just no no environmental suits whatsoever. We just walk into any old world and hope for the best. And it didn't always turn out that way. I uh, I think we went through the one that cooked a bunch of us. A couple of us went through at the same time, and it just happened to be the one with the binary star, and we got cooked really bad. I'm in favor, at least initially, going through an environmental suit, you know, just long enough to at least tell whether or not there's uh, an immediate danger to to worry about. Oh yeah, I agree. One of the reasons we do all this sort of stuff is because it's part of what you're supposed to do as an explorer. You're supposed to be going to an alien world and you're supposed to be doing some kind of a biological or whatever type of survey so that information goes back to IDET and it helps them to determine important information about the world, not only for future use um, and, and other type of things, just for general scientific purposes. You can tell by looking at the air sample whether there's products from industrialization, and that will tell you, you know, you're in the middle of a desert somewhere, you, that may tell you that somewhere around you're going to find a higher tech society than uh, people pushing, chasing down jackrabbits. So it's important, is, I would think, as far as the GM is concerned, to say, hey, you know, you guys are out there, you need to do some basic work. It, it's not just make work to do, it also lets the people get involved. It gives some of the other players who may not have an immediate spotlight time something for them to do rather than just stand around and say, well, I'm waiting for something to happen so that I can get something to do. And the GM finally takes pity on them and has some Tyrannosaurus jump out of the bush at them. Right. I, I think it'd be better for them to actually go and do something like that. Because then when they go back, then IDEC can say, oh, well, you did your survey. Thank you very much. Here's one or two more levels of wealth for you to use. Uh, or you know, thank you for this information. Now the GM can start revealing more information about the world. It's, it's also ways for the GM to tell you about the world that you're in. So it's important that you do these surveys so that you, you can learn more from the GM. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. So let me ask you this, because this is important. When you have a first contact team, the uh, not maybe not even first contact, but your first the people the first people to walk through that portal officially, how long do they generally plan to stay there? Is it a one day thing, or is it go in, grab a few samples, get out, go back to IDET, take these samples, have them analyzed, and then send a team in better prepared for that environment? What do you think, John? I'm staring at, at that very self same question right now. I'm working on a scenario for the uh, Victorian Earth. The two on Prime Alternate Platform Zero Portal Zero Two, where it's set for Team Two. We have Team One has gone through and found something and gather information, but they decided the situation was such that they themselves cannot actually do the first contact. Therefore, they got to deliver the information to the players. If you're going to gather a lot of information about, a, especially if you run into civilization, one day doesn't do it. 
But if you don't get caught, one day is about all you get. So you, there's a question there, okay, do we want to initiate first contact or stay off in the, in the bushes and the trees, plant, you know, planting microphones here and there and playing cameras here and there, and hopefully no one finds them, and learn as much as we can about this place before we actually decide to make first contact. It's a fine line to work out. I mean, this is actually one of the questions that IDIT's going to have itself. Well, how do we do a reconnaissance before we actually do a first contact? It will be determined somewhat by how close civilization is to the portal. That's true. Oh, yeah. If you got 100 miles before you run into people, then you've got lots of time to do these kinds of general geological, biological surveys. But then you have the problem where you're going to have to travel 100 miles before you can actually make real first contact with some people. And that means you either have to drive your vehicles that 100 miles or you're going to have to hump it. You know, we never used to do this, but now that I'm really thinking about it, if I were to set this up, if, I mean, if it was me, if I was in charge of IDET and it was, you know, I was like designing the, the teams and the order in which people go and, and how things, how policy is written, I would personally have a team. And this is, this is just, for, I mean, we have to start from no one has ever been through this door. They have no idea what's on the other side of it because there could be anything. It could be an other. It could be an asteroid. It could be, you know, it could be anything. So I would have a special team, and literally their job would be to go through the portal, and they would have environmental. Maybe they go through in a spacesuit for the first time. Maybe they'd use the wind-ups, and they would come back, and then they would, you know, um, if it was safe enough, they'd go in an environmental suit or whatever, set down a few probes, maybe solar probes or whatever, and then they would come back out. They would wait a day, go back in, get the probes, collect their data, and go back to IDET with that. And that would actually be the absolute first initial survey which only be a few minutes only expose them very minimally then that way they could establish what kind of team are we going to send here if this thing goes through and there's a society you know nearby it's going to pick up radio waves it's going to pick up chemicals in the atmosphere to state that it's industrial it's like okay so we have to send a team that is going to potentially make first contact but if it you know it winds up in a desert there's no evidence of any life or anything like that. Okay, we have to send a scientific team that's going to do a geological and atmospheric survey. In the games that I run, that's usually how it is. There is a survey service. As long as you're not at the very beginning where there's almost no IDET teams at all, once there's a, at least like a dozen teams, then at least one of them becomes a purely survey group. And what they do is they go out and they do that initially. They never even go through the portal. They just simply go and put stuff out that will return or they'll loop through the portal and and then ignite themselves and burn up so that there won't leave any you know thing behind but they'll take pictures and air samples and they'll get all that basic stuff so that the next team that goes through knows whether or not they need to have their environmental suits on all the time now I still recommend that you go ahead and, and do the very same test once you get there, not the ones that require a lab, but like take some photographs and look at the photographs before you go through because anything could have happened in the meantime. You know, maybe, you know, that little ignition thing you did to get rid of your camera, the disposable camera leave no trace started a forest fire and that <laughs> fire is still burning. Maybe there's a, a bad storm, electrical storm going on the outside. You, you need to still follow up with some first contact tests. But I agree with the idea of having a survey service. It's, you know, it just kind of depends on what you want to do. And, and most of the times, what I've heard from other GMs and other players is that they don't want to be that person because that job is very mechanical. And you're never actually going to talk to anybody or see anybody. 
and they don't like that. They, they want to be the people who actually do make the first contact. So, but they do like the cushion of information. So oh, this sure. is kind of one of these NPC type groups that, that the GM uh, provides this information from. And if he can really flavor it up by saying, you know, by giving all those team members names and having them make various comments that would be appropriate to their nationalities, and that could be really good too. Yeah, I call them uh, path breakers. They're, that's what they're doing. They're breaking the path. They're making, that's cool. making a path yeah. for you, and they're earning the hazard pay. They're risking a whole lot, because sometimes you'll step through that portal, and you'll get into the worst situation possible. That is, you step through the portal on top of the altar in front of the, in front of the congregation. What's going to happen at that point is up to the GM and the people who do that. <laughs> But, John, Once. you're having your half-breaker people step through without looking at any visual evidence before they do that. I mean, there's lots of ways of, of taking a picture and having it return to the portal before you go through. People get bored doing their job sometimes, and they say, hey, let's just go through and see what's on the other side. So that would be the Pathfinder group that doesn't come back, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the main reasons that I would never send somebody through until I send some equipment through is because if it's a problem portal, it may take effect on the equipment before it takes, if it sucks it through, for example, that's yeah. a real good reason not to personally travel through. Yeah. Though I usually, when that kind of thing that's in the book where somebody touches the portal and it literally yanks them through, that's really rare, even with problem portals. Usually what happens is the problem portal, look, everything looks fine until you actually go all the way through. Yeah. And that's where, as you were saying, Bix, the important thing is to go and have some device that can operate independently. I was thinking about like some kind of like a little ro robot that you push through and then it sits there and it charges up by solar light and it starts itself up and then it takes all kinds of samples and readings and displays it on a view screen. You, after a certain amount of time has gone by, you go and take a picture of that view screen. And when I say take a picture, I'm talking about but a device for where you have a camera on a wheel and the camera goes through the wheel taking pictures and it comes out while the rest of the wheel is being pulled through the portal. You can snatch the camera off of the wheel and then the, the, the wheel continues to go through, but you still got the camera. As long as more mass is going through than you've just plucked off, it doesn't violate the Fringeworthy. Everything has to keep going through the portal uh, law. Huh. That way you've got your self-developing film and you take a look at the pictures. Hopefully one of the pictures will have that display screen on the robot and it'll say whatever needs to be said. Or it doesn't even have to be a screen. It could print it out and put it into in between like a layer of Lexam. It's okay, so now I know what it's really like on the other side of the portal and then you can step through. You could also strap a uh, radiation um, badges that people wear that it's completely chemical, so there's no electrical component to it. It just changes color of exposed to radiation, and you can make that thing very sensitive so that it only needs a very short exposure, so you could see the radiation. There's also a biological one. I believe soldiers wear them that will detect harmful biological elements. There'd be something else you could attach with the camera, so when you pull the camera off, you get several other pieces of information as well. Right, and, and if you can do that, that's great. Data gathering is part of keeping you alive as well as gathering information about the world that you're about to go through. But ultimately, you're going to have to go through and be on that world. So that's why we were saying it's important to have something that can record all that data, like the Erding and a lot of devices for recording information on the sound, on visual, and especially all the different non-visual radiations and various tests for bugs and 
other types of things. But one of the things that we, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but if I believe so, if you freeze something down to, I think, about negative 200, even uh, bad viruses and things like that will actually pass through the portal. It's so cold that the, the portal system doesn't treat it as if it's alive anymore. Hmm. Sometimes it's good to know where you are. And that actually can be really hard to do. Best you can find out is what your latitude. You realize, okay, we're at the 30th degree, and this guy here speaks Texan. Okay, we're in Texas. Well, how would you determine that? The only way you determine that in the real world is that you go from a known starting point and you keep accurate time. That's why the accurate watches and chronometers were really developed was to, so you can determine where you are on the surface of the Earth as you, as you travel across it. You know your latitude is. We're about to be on the 30th parallel, but we don't quite know where we are. We're in the desert, so that narrows it down to Sahara and some desert in Mexico or Texas. But beyond that, it's, it gets hard to figure out, unless you run into civilization and you find out and you get a map. I don't want to disagree with you, John, but if you had a good astronomical package, as in like good software about stars and how they look in the night sky at various places, especially other places around the Earth, and you had a good optical system so you could map those things and the ability after 10 minutes time to be able to tell where true north is, you hook that all into the Erdine, run a, a pattern matching thing, don't you think you'd be able to tell from the night sky where you are on the world? No, no, you just know your latitude. Because if you're on a 30 degree parallel, the stars always look the same to everyone on that parallel. That's the other thing you need to find out too. You left Hatsumi Base at noon, and you, and you traveled not to an hour's trip, and you went through a portal. It may be midnight in, the, in that world. You don't know what time it is until you spend some time seeing what a day is like, what time of day you step through. That way you know when to come through in the morning, which is usually a good time to, uh, to go. At least it gives you a full day's worth of light at that point, too. One of the problems I have with all that is that perhaps you go to a world where the axis tilt is different or the day is different. Where, I mean, it could be any kind of alternate thing that could have happened. Maybe this, this Earth doesn't have a moon or which is debatable whether life could exist or not, but that's still it's still debatable. It could still happen. Or, or maybe it had a moon and it was taken away by a spaceship or something. Who knows? But the point of the matter is is that you, you don't know that you could count on the readings you're getting from the stars or from the day cycle. Let's say you are at a certain latitude. Well, that might not make any difference because the water table might be 100 feet higher than it was on Earth. So you think you know where you are, but it doesn't really matter because the whole landmass is different. There's no doubt that there's going to be some a lot of differences to have to deal with, but um, I, I thought you could get both latitude and longitude, but I knew you could get latitude. So uh, just looking at the stars, assuming, yeah. of course, that the stars are going to be similar, and I think in most alternates they will be fairly similar. Oh, sure, sure. Of course, there is the ultimate find-out-where-you-are package. That's that small uh, rocket that launches a satellite into orbit. A small, relatively speaking, rocket, yes. Hey. Send a small satellite into a low Earth orbit and get a quick pass over your area and say, okay, I think we're in Florida, but in Florida, there must be an ice age because Florida's really big and, and fat. And that's, that's, that's not right. Well, yeah, you're, you're right. Things will change. But still, having an astronomy package like that will allow you 
to at least determine your latitude. And of course, if your latitude is the equator and it's 50 degrees, then you're probably dealing with a world that's either in an ice age or never was very warm to begin with. All right. And that's important information too. That's true. Plus, let's put it this way. If you're using the astronomy package and it comes out the same, then you know where you are because the chances of it being the same are astronomical. I mean, so so if it's the same, if, if your astronomy package is telling you, oh, this star is here, then it's going to be the same. You're going to be on the same kind of Earth. It's pretty much you know, relatively the same as the Earth that we're on now. Yeah, it's not going to be an alternate geological probably. Right, you're, you're probably looking at the same kind of Earth, and you probably know where you are. And if you don't, you don't. I mean, that happens, but as I think as it's written in the game, you generally are. It's generally the same Earth with the same stars and the same the, – the changes are, are relatively minor from that aspect. But again, the uh, importance here is that collecting data helps you prepare for what you're going to be facing, helps you have the right kind of clothing, helps you bring the right kind of food, helps you get some idea as to which direction you might want to travel. So it's important to collect information about the world when you go through it, as long as it doesn't get too tedious and tiresome. The players are going to have to let the GM know when he's going too far in that direction because, you know, the GM just spent a long time probably creating this world. He's going to want to show it off as much as you'll let him do it. So don't be shy about letting the GM know that he's giving you too much information, but at the same time, a lot of times he's trying to tell you something. So pay attention and do what's necessary to let the GM tell you about the world. So you have all this data about the world. Then there's the second stage of data collection. We decided we're going to, make, we're going to do first contact, but we're not going to actually introduce ourselves as from another world. We're going to play at being from that world. And we need to collect more data about the society. So, so you collect people. <laughs> well, you can collect people, or you head to your nearest library with, with a camera, and you basically start recording history books to see what the heck's been going on in that place, and get newspapers if they still have newspapers. It's a lot of tedious information gathering, but at least you'll have a better idea of what's going on in that world. Make an investigation roll. Okay, here's the information you, you found out. It doesn't have to be tedious, but you at least should be able to do that at least once or twice. <laughs> if you have a library, it's really smart to go ahead and do that. Because you'll be able to tell whether you're on an alternate temporal or, or what kind, you know, there's a lot of things that you'll be able to find out about. A lot of gotchas, for example, customs can be listed there. Almost every library I've ever seen has at least one or two books on manners and how young people should comport themselves. Well, that's really important for you to get if you want to pass yourself off in polite society and perhaps meet a mover and shaker and not be treated as if you're like a savage. We like to trash. Dumpster diving. Dumpster diving, yeah. Trash is good. Trash is actually really good if you can find a decent trash dump. Dumpster diving, garbology. I think a fringe worthy should all get a degree in garbology to figure out what's going on. A decent keep of garbage can tell you so much about a, about a culture. Actually, probably more so than their books would. I just finished up an anthropology class, and um, that's pretty much what anthropologists look at most of the time. Most of what they find is garbage. I think you mentioned on an earlier uh, section, John, you said that when you go through a portal, if you have a sheet of paper that has all kinds of technical terms on it, objects, things that are common to society, especially things having to do with technology, since most of the time when you're going through 
to examine a world, you're kind of hoping to find some really cool technology to bring back to Earth. It's really good to have that list in a number of different languages because what you can do is try to pronounce, say the word in the, in the local language. And if they don't have a word for automobile or if they don't have a word for telephone or if they don't have a word for virus or insulin or various th words like that, then they probably don't have the technology to support that. And it's a good way of inferring or deducing information from the responses you're able to make just by reading off a list of vocabulary words. Some words you want to actually want to take off that list. I think I used the word computer. Unfortunately, up until the 1950s, a computer was someone you hired to work in your office. Sometimes words will change. Things like transistor, that's a go. X-rays, that's a go. You may say virus, someone's listening here is evil humors. Yeah, it depends on how much you want to role play. All right, so uh, I think we've covered most of these kinds of things. A temperature barometer is also a good thing, temperature things. John, can you think of an object that you like to bring to a world that most people don't think to bring? An object to bring to a world most people don't think. Yeah, what kind of t a tool, something you'd use on a world for data gathering that you think that people normally forget to bring? There's the old-fashioned pencil and notepad. Yeah, you got the Erdine computer, but sometimes you're out in the field and you're belly, belly down to a bunch of grass watching some guys work in the field, having a, a notepad and, and, and pencil to write down notes is in, indispensable. Bix, what do you think? Well, I was going to say shortwave radio, but I think a lot of people think of that. Uh, personally, though, I had a character who used to bring – he'd always bring a big piece of parchment or like – not parchment, but like tissue paper and charcoal to do rubbings. Oh. So that way he could – if he found um, you know, if he found something that he wanted to bring back, let's say he didn't have a camera, camera got broken or whatever, it's the mechanical camera. So he could do rubbings of things. He could do rubbings of plants and all kinds of stuff. So I like that. I like that too. A linesman climbing gear is one thing that I always recommend for people to bring because they're always coming there and says, well, yeah, well, let's climb that tree, that big tall tree there, and I'm having them make all kinds of climbing checks because they're not equipped, and so a lot of times they're trying to bring a backpack up the thing, and having something that provides them with specific help in climbing a tree is could be very useful to them. Oh, yeah, that's true, because climbing way up a tall tree could be rough. It's also a lot faster. You don't have to worry about where the branches are when you have something that'll jab right into the the bark of the tree. Right. Or you can set up a belay system where one person who's good at climbing does climb up with the gear. Then he puts down a belay system and pulls the rest of them up. Let's see all the things you want to bring. You have a big semi-truck to bring it all with because it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff we're talking about. But lots of this stuff will get miniaturized. I mean, of course, there's no way to miniaturize a uh, orbital satellite launching system, but everything else can be miniaturized. But still, you know, you might want to consider also having at least two different vehicles. That way, you can split the gear between two different vehicles, still have room for everyone to sit around and and, uh, and be comfortable. Then let me just mention a few items that I think that people forget. One is a dragging harness. This is a device that's kind of like a girdle you put on yourself, and it's designed specifically to allow you to drag heavy objects, animals that you might kill and have to bring back to camp, wood, trees, rocks, anything that's large and heavy that it's in a place where you can't easily bring it back. Putting on one of these harnesses allows you to pull 
500 to 1,000 pounds without giving yourself a hernia or uh, fraying your back. Hmm. Of course, one player has a whip to go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, uh, lots of stainless steel vacuum bottles is a good idea because not only does it keep your coffee hot, but it also means that you don't have to worry about putting some kind of caustic material in something that you have to worry about or temperature. Some things are sensitive to temperature. You put them inside one of those bottles and you don't have to worry about that. One of the few things I like to use is a, a gyroscopically powered shaver. This is really good for taking very thin samples of things like fur and shavings off of plants and things like that. It has like a pull cord on it and you pull it and it spins up the, uh, the shaver gyroscopically and gives you maybe 30 seconds to a minute worth of shaving power. It also means you can shave yourself immediately upon going through the portal, but I'm thinking more along the lines of taking clippings of hair and, and, and other types of things like that that you can then take a small sample of and put into a sample bottle. Now that you say that, I'm thinking that, you know, it'd be nice. A box of Ziploc, you know, sandwich baggies would be a good thing to have. Uh, they're easy to carry. Uh, plastic is pretty, it's mostly non-reactive. And I would also bring a, I'd bring a titanium scoop because titanium is one of the most non-reactive metals and it's very, you know, super durable. It can withstand a ton of heat. It's non-corrosive. It's, it'd be a good, you know, good tool. Like, what is that? I don't know. Let me take a scooping of it. Or maybe even like some titanium bottles would be good. Yeah. Well, wh whatever you can get. On top of that, besides the stainless steel bottles, there are some things if you put them against stainless steel, will corrode stainless steel. So you want to bring along some, very least, mason jars. Yes, it's beyond glass, but glass is one of the most non-reactive substances out there. So you can, for, for things like uh, like fluorine gas, you can put it into a glass jar, and it pretty much won't be able to do anything to the glass jar.